This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with James Crossland about his book, War, Law, and Humanity, The Campaign to Control Warfare, 1853 to 1914. James, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Okay, well, I'm a a senior lecturer in international history at Liverpool John Moores University. I um, took up that post in 2014, if my memory serves. Uh, And prior to that, I worked in uh, Western Australia. Um, I've been uh, working on the history of uh, humanitarianism and and, and the Red Cross for the better part of the last um, decade or so, if I I count my PhD, um, which was later turned into a book. And that was concerned with the the history of the Red Cross movement during the Second World War. And I've sort of branched out from that as I've um, um, uh, grown into scholarship, I guess. Um, And uh, and presently, um, as this book suggests, going backwards in time in my research, going away from the Second World War, going back to the 19th century, and trying to um, fit um, some of the stuff that I've been researching for the last decade or so on on the Red Cross into a broader understanding of how warfare has changed and how attitudes to war have changed over time. What was it that led you to undertake uh, that focus instead of, say, uh, looking uh, forward from 1945, or or, or, or looking, you know, in a, in a in different aspects of some of these movies. Why, why did you decide to go back to uh, 1853 to talk about this late 19th, early 20th century period? Um, well, there are, there are a few reasons. Um, as regards to not going forward, I uh, I must confess, I I find myself increasingly bored of the world after 1945. Um, and I realize that's, um, you know, uh, hor- horrifying for a number of scholars who, who uh, are fascinated by the, the speed at which the world has developed. 
um, since the end of the Second World War and how it's all gotten very confusing and muddled. Um, for my part, I think I think the present day is confusing and muddled enough, and I I, I seek understanding by going further back. Um, so that was a, a purely selfish motivation in that respect, but it also dovetailed with a a broader concern I had over humanitarian history, or two concerns over humanitarian history. One is that there is or there has been in re recent years a trend to see it as being this um, all, all as seeing all the developments of, of humanitarianism as being very 20th century based, um, which I, I never fully agreed with. And it's not not to say there haven't been books that haven't looked at the, the sort of pre first and second world wars history of, of humanitarian action and indeed military medicine and all the rest. But in looking further back, what I realized, and this was my my second and I guess real motivation for writing this book, was that having looked at the development of military medicine and the development of the Red Cross movement um, and the development through the Red Cross movement of international law, international humanitarian law, the Geneva Convention, the Hague Convention, et cetera, et cetera, and then through the latter, through the Hague Convention, also starting to wrap my head around the history of peace movements, um, I realized that these histories were intertwined in a way that I don't think anyone had ever really put together into a single volume. Now, there had been, uh, there was an excellent book written in the 90s uh, by uh, John F. Hutchinson on the on the history, the early history of the Red Cross. And then there was Jeffrey Best's book in the early 80s, which uh, um, Warfare and Humanity, I think it was called, um, which was uh, a, an overview of several centuries of the development of the, the laws of armed conflict and humanitarian trends in warfare. Um, but that that book seemed a little bit outdated to me and um, also didn't seem to get to the nub of the matter, which was that if you follow the, the threads of these different histories of, of military medicine and pacifism, law and everything else, you realize that there's um, a point of confluence really during this period under study in the, in the Findesec where uh, a number of individuals at the at the forefront of these various movements and trends all come together, exchange information, share adventures with each other, um, develop ideas, argue with each other. Um, and this was something that I just picked up over the years of reading and, and researching this. And it struck me that what was needed was a volume that that brought all these stories together and, and brought these individuals together and examined how they bounce these ideas off one another. And in so doing, engendered uh, what, as the title of the book suggests, the, the campaign to control warfare, which is, um, as I say, picked up in the scholarship of those who, who want to look at what's happened post-1945 and even post-1918. For my part, I felt that there needed to be a bit more explanation of where these trends came from. And that's why I, I, I went back uh, to the Crimean War and, and kind of started from there. It really was a, a fascinating starting point because, it, as you explained at the beginning of the book, it, it, you you point out the um, the real uh, vacuum that existed in so many respects. I mean, you you have uh, you know arguments and ideas about international law predating this, and you do have uh, you know you know medicine goes all the way back to the ancient world. But as you describe in uh, the early to mid 19th century, that period, there really is no serious discussion, not just of this, I, these ideas you talk about of 
uh, controlling warfare or trying to ban warfare, but there is an even basic medical provisions. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, start us off by explaining what, you know, were the basic conditions of warfare uh, for the people who fought in it during this time. And what was it that led people to start in the 1850s to really, in some respects, for the first time to address this question about, you know, caring for people in war and doing something about warfare? Well, th- there were two main reasons why um, the development of military medicine in particular was, was stagnant in the period leading up to the Crimean War. And that was because um, the, the last great war is fought, uh, ends in 1815, the war against Napoleon. Um, and after that, you get a real winding down of investment um, and and, uh, and thought, to be honest, about in, in military medicine um, in Europe. There had been some some great advances in in regards to battlefield medicine during that particular conflict. You had uh, Baron Percy and Baron Leray who um, came up with ideas of how to um, extract soldiers from the battlefield for frontline treatment, triage, things like that. Um, the uh, British Army um, invested increasingly throughout the war in, in medical logistics, um, but all of that cost money. And after Napoleon's defeat and after the Congress of Vienna, which remember was supposed to hold Europe at peace for as long as was humanly possible, outside of you know uh, colonial skirmishes, I guess, and 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 the odd uprising in Europe, there isn't any grand war going on, and and without that fuel, without that need. Um, there is all the excuse in the world to strip the funding and strip the development and just strip the, the contemplation really out of the, the military medical departments such as they were across continental armies. Um, and what that led to was uh, conditions where military medicine either stagnates and basically stays the same from the, from the end of the Napoleonic Wars through to the Crimean War, or in some cases it even gets worse. And this was something that was lamented by French surgeons during in the Crimean War in particular, saying how in the years leading up to that conflict, money had actually been taken away from uh, the funding for uh, the training of surgeons and standards had actually been lowered in regards to the recruiting of surgeons. Um, And the same is very much true in the United States. Um, This is obviously a transatlantic history, so it's worth mentioning that with the exception of what happens with the, the Mexican War, um, where there are some nods in the direction of, of uh, some of the practices that have been going on in Europe, not much really changes from the Revolutionary War onwards. Um, it all it all basically stays it stays the same. Uh, so there's a lack of will, there's lack of money, and there's a lack of impetus um, across much of the transatlantic world to to um, uh, build upon some of the discoveries made during the conflicts of the 1790s and early 1800s. Um, and then in, in tandem with that, there's also a very sluggish movement in the science behind military medicine. Um, it's true that in the, in the 1840s, you get chloroform and ether being used as anesthetics. Um, you get the the first notions of, of germ theory uh, sort of coming through and being accepted by some, rejected by others. It's not until the 1860s that that really starts starts taking off as a as a as a uniform idea. And so, as a consequence, the actual methods of of keeping soldiers healthy are they remain 
quite primitive. Um, uh, anesthetic is, is not used widely. Um, uh, the conditions of, of, uh, of hygiene within, within wards are, are just sort of accepted to be bad. And that breeds into a wider complacency, which really comes to the fore in, in some of the attitudes that uh, Florence Nightingale encounters when she gets to the Crimea is that she, she, she basically butts heads with a, with a military medical establishment that has accepted that a soldier's life, uh, particularly a wounded soldier's life, is going to be miserable and, and deadly and, and, and dangerous and, and, and they, they cannot be cared for to certain extents. There are certain things that cannot happen on the march. I was I was thinking about this as, as uh, I was reading the book about how you point out in both the Crimean War and 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 the U.S. Civil War how you have the people who are the heads of their medical establishments who who apparently seem to be promoted more for their ability to run lean establishments than for any sort of great vision for taking care of soldiers in times of war. Yeah, well, visions cost money. Um, and uh, in, in the in the years leading up to both those conflicts, the the impetus is is to really, um, uh, you know, make sure that make sure that the 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 purse strings are, are shut. Um, and this is particularly true, as I say, in, in the French case. It's also true in the British case, and that's simply because the the as I say the 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 idea that you can win a war by keeping soldiers healthy. It doesn't really it doesn't really click with a lot of military commanders, not yet, at least. And as I explained in the book, that's one of the, the big points that helps the development of this whole campaign is when military commanders figure out that actually a healthy soldier is a good fighting soldier. Um, but it's not really until the 1860s that, that um, commanders and in particular war officers start to start to realize that connection. And, and as such, the the investment in military medicine is left to 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 wither on the vine. So per, could you take us then to uh, the Crimean War and, and, and how that became a catalyst? Why it is it's that in that war that we start to see uh, a greater uh, attention being focused upon this and the, the rise of these figures who are really making it their 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 life's mission to uh, care for soldiers who are uh, wounded on the battlefield? Well, the 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 X factor in the Crimean War is that it's um, the first major war in which war correspondency is a is a, a thing, um, and in which the average reader of a of a newspaper uh, back home in in London or Paris, more so London than Paris, owing to censorship, uh, could could read about the horrors of war firsthand. And this was something that we we very much take for granted today. Any time that we look at a newspaper. Uh, we can we can see you know horrifying images of 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 what happens in war and read read terrible tales and get outraged uh, and want to do something. This was a pretty new thing in the 1850s, um, and it was a shocking thing, and it was made all the more shocking by the fact that there was an awful lot of horrible stuff to write about in the Crimean War. Um, this was not a, a well thought out um, uh, uh, military expedition, to put it mildly. Um, and from the military medical standpoint, it was it was the victim of the hubris, as I mentioned, of the previous um, uh, decades. And that came in tandem with the perfect storm of war correspondency. It led to an intense uh, public interest in the welfare of soldiers. And because the war wasn't going particularly well initially um, for, for Britain and 
France, and because it all seemed like a bit of a, a bit of a fiasco at the, at the outset, it was for for many people it was another stick with which to beat the government. It was a way of saying, well, it's not just that you can't fight this war; you also can't look after the brave lads fighting it. Um, and that was a, a a a big a big moment that ultimately led to Florence Nightingale arriving with a, a brigade of nurses at Scutari Barracks. Um, and that, but that was the product of a what was basically a, um, a a grassroots campaign to try and try and raise funds for some sort of expeditionary mission to go out there and to investigate what exactly the British Army was doing. I thought it was it, one of the things I liked about your book was the nuance you put into it. It's it's not a, a clear cut case of people like Florence Nightingale being entirely on the side of right. You talk about the role of personality in this. And I was struck by when you're talking about Florence Nightingale, how you point out that even though Florence Nightingale really does a lot to uh, try to do the best for the wounded soldiers, how she brings uh, enormous public attention to the cause. She becomes this iconic figure, the lady with the lamp. But you, you point out at the same at the same time that she's hardly this, you know, unabashedly progressive figure about how she still is uh, rooted in these uh, outdated ideas about miasmatic uh, fumes being the source of infections and how you know anything that she achieves in terms of improving, you know, those conditions are more coincidental than than than, than cause driven. I think Nightingale's strength is that she, um, because she's an outsider to to the military medical establishment in Britain, she can see the woods for the trees, and she understands that war correspondency has changed the game. She understands that public interest has changed the game, um, and she also understands, in a way, that these these men who uh, have been raised into this establishment, this moribund military medical establishment this defunded military medical establishment these men who who are just you know as, as you said before that their job is to is to penny pinch and make sure that nothing much happens and just kicking over she looks at that and she can see it for what it is and she understands that that actually what's needed here isn't some grand military medical vision um i mean she's far from from a, a medical savant as you say there's a lot about medicine she does not understand she's not you know, trained in any way what she has is basic common sense uh she has the ability to look at a, at a, at a filthy blood splattered ward in which there are men um crying out unattended and say well if someone does the rounds every few hours and checks on the condition of these men and you know god forbid writes it down so that we have a record of whether they're deteriorating or getting better or whatever else then we might actually be able to get we get a handle on what's going on here she also understands that you know a, a, a blood splattered, filthy ward is is not going to be a healthy environment. She doesn't quite understand why, but she can just look at it and say, "Well, obviously, this isn't good. Obviously, this isn't going to be right." Um, and as you say, that that that's that's her very much her approach is that it's not necessarily grand medical wisdom. It is in context just the the ability to to see beyond the the rather myopic way of looking at things that's been established for, for decades within the military medical establishment. And at the heart of that, as I say, is this acceptance that, um, you know, a, a wounded soldier is, is, is a, a roll of the dice. We can, we can evacuate them. We can put them in a bed, but then it's, it's, we can extract, extract the, the piece of lead from them. But then after that, it's somewhat in God's hands. Um, she looks at that and says, well, that's not good enough. We can actually do better. And that, that's really the, her her gift to this whole situation. 
um, to, to see the bigger picture and to bring some, some basic common sense to it. You, you make it clear, though, that it's not just Nightingale. You talk about a lot of other figures, uh, such as the, the figures in the secretary in, in the office, in the war office, who are you know, willing to uh, support her. You talk about other people that are trying to introduce medical techniques in addition to Florence Nightingale. And yet it also comes out, it, it, as you read further into your book, just how galvanizing a, uh, a an individual she is as this as this uh, very public figure. And I thought that comes across most strongly when you talk about the American Civil War, because when you uh, start talking about people like Dorothea Dix and Clara Barton, how for them, it, the, is that at that point, they have an example to, to follow a, a person to, to emulate. And, and, and as you make clear, they, they also really hope to win her admiration. So you have this, this, this precedent that's been set that other figures, as, as new wars break out, they, they start to say, well, we need to basically do what she did. She's a celebrity. Um, and and by, by her own design, she's a celebrity. She cultivates uh, herself as this, as this um, celebrity figure whose deeds you should seek to emulate. Um, it's by design, but it's also, you know, a, a, a good design because, as you say, it, it, it gets into the minds of like-minded people who perhaps wouldn't have otherwise been, been motivated or, or not had the confidence, um, uh, particularly women in the United States who during the Civil War – it, it very much comes down to a what would Florence Nightingale do attitude, um, and it's in that sense. I mean, this is this is part of her her one woman revolution is that is that she is able to create. By the time the Civil War breaks out in eighteen sixty one, she she's she's a brand, um, and she's she's a, a brand that is synonymous with the idea that anyone can roll up their sleeves and help soldiers in times of war and can make a difference. It doesn't matter if they're devoid of, of uh, military medical education or, or they're just someone who, with a, a role of lint who wants to help out. Um, now, Nightingale, the, the grand you know, irony of that is that Nightingale herself did not agree with that. She actually had, had nothing but contempt for the amateurs um, as she saw them. She wanted, uh, she wanted to be the, the inspiration behind a, a revolution in, in the professionalization of military medicine and the calling to account of governments who had hitherto um, been been very stingy in, in, in training surgeons. She wanted governments to pick up the, the, the butcher's bill for war, basically, and to train surgeons properly. Um, so her actual intentions didn't quite dovetail with what some of her followers felt, which was to go for a more purely Samaritan at, um, um, uh, version of, of humanitarian action. But as I say, she, by this stage, she's created herself as such an icon that, um, any, anyone with any kind of aspirations can kind of, uh, affix, affix those to her and say, well, I am acting in, in Nightingale's, um, uh, vision basically. The other thing I found fascinating about the uh, example of the American Civil War, though, is that it, it seems that even though uh, the Crimean War ends uh, uh, six years before the outbreak of the American Civil War, there still seems to be at the start of that of, of the latter conflict that that same sense that you know the were, it was it was uh, basically American versions of, of the same. Uh, you know, elderly figures who are more focused upon uh, you know running tight establishments than upon care. How long does it take for the United States uh, uh, to pick up on a lot of what 
the British and the French and the Russians learned in the Crimean War? Was it there, was it a similar uh, uh, learning curve, or did they pick up on it a bit more quickly now that they, that they had the Crimean War example? It's it's a learning curve that that um, is, is explored through the Civil War. But to be honest, by the time you get to to eighteen sixty five. Uh, the pioneers of that learning curve, people like um, uh, Jonathan Letterman and William A. Hammond, uh, who are Union Army um, surgeons, they um, a lot of their teachings are, I wouldn't say forgotten, but they are somewhat put aside. And they, they, they come up with some pretty good ideas about how to, in particular, evacuate um, uh, with the wounded from the battlefield. Uh, they understand the importance of, of, of evacuation. Um, concepts around how to do surgery quickly and relatively cleanly, and also just basic logistics and, and military medical administration. A lot of this stuff does stick around in the United States, but it really doesn't get built into um, army practice. I would say, I would say until the Spanish War in eighteen ninety-eight, and that's and that's in, in no small part because of that same old problem. Well problem is one way to put it but it's a good thing in others uh that the united states is not engaged in 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 wars during this period not not uh, not massive uh, you know wars again uh, uh, against other states that are depleting resources and, and forcing these questions to be asked remember that the, the the civil war when that's entered into no one's really thinking it's going to last as long as it does there's great faith that it's going to be a one battle war and that after um, the, the two sides clash at the first battle of Bull Run, that that's that's going to be it. Um, and it's 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 a learning curve they all have to go on. There's a reason why in both the North and the South, um, the investment in in military medicine leading up to the the summer of of 1861 is is very scant because there's no anticipation that they're going to need these firmly established, funded, provisioned military medical corps um, for, to, to keep mass armies uh, healthy for, for an extended period, because no one's envisioning that it's going to um, be as long and drawn out and god-awful as it becomes. So you also said, though, uh, another interesting innovation that takes place during the American Civil War that is uh, perhaps a product of the fact that as the, the conflict uh, you know continues, they begin to figure out ways of adapting. And that is the creation of an organization that it has this humanitarian purpose of caring for the wounded and in the form of the United States Sanitary Commission. I was wondering if you could talk about how you you're, this, this development you start to see of not just the very committed individual in the, in the form of, say, a Dorothea Dix or a Clara Barton, but the creation of this organization and how that also uh, influences the, the dynamic of, of, of caring for the wounded and, a, a, and trying to control war. The USSC was a real uh, revelation for me in, in, this, um, in this research. Um, the United States Sanitary Commission was basically a prototype Red Cross uh, developed uh, only a few years, really, before the idea of the Red Cross was first put forward in, in Switzerland by Henri Dunant. Um, it was really a blending of that that more, for want of a better term, amateur uh, attitude of, of just rush the battlefield with, with bandage in hand and help out where you can, combined with the, the Nightingale instruction, um, which was to 
make sure that there's statistics on who's wounded, how they're wounded, how they're being treated, make sure that someone's paying the bill for this, and make sure that there's some measure of training behind it. So the USSC is a kind of a amalgamation of the two, and that is why it it grows exponentially during the the civil war. That is why it um, attracts some some pretty heavy hitters in 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 regard to uh, uh, people of standing in 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 the society in, uh, um, in the north. People like uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, a respected architect. People like George Templeton Strong, um, very uh, bellicose lawyer. Um, as well as uh, the the man who founds the organization, Henry Whitney Bellows, who is a, who is a preacher, you get this mix of of both the the purest Samaritans um, and these people who are, as I explained in the book, they're, they're some they're, they're empire builders really. They're people who see the USSC as something that's not just an expedient forced upon the Union by the fact that it. The Lincoln's army grows massively and has endures catastrophic losses um, at the start of the war in particular. Um, they see it as something that can stick around after the war and form the bedrock of a, of a during reconstruction of a of a, uh, a United States that's going to be fitter and healthier and more humanitarian minded. Now, none of this happens. Um, the USSC does end up being just that, an expedient of war that that. Uh, um, loses its donations, loses its drive, loses its direction, really, the moment that the guns stop firing. Um, but the idea of, of humanitarian empire building, which is absolutely essential today to any sort of humanitarian enterprise in war, whether it be Médecins Sans Frontières or whether it be the Red Cross, um, the idea of ever expanding and, and, and building resources in preparation for not just the next war, but in preparation for diffusing humanitarian principles into peacetime practice. That's something the USSC's founders figure out in the 1860s. Um, it's a vision that really is before its time. Now, do they make an effort to try to continue the organization after the war, or are they willing to say, maybe this could be better done in other means, and they dismantle the organization just as soon as you put it as the gun stop firing? They they do make an effort, and it's it's monumentally sad. Um, I was going through their archives, there at the New York Public Library, and you get to the the sort of eighteen sixty five through to the early eighteen seventies period, and and very very quickly, uh, bear in mind there's hundreds and hundreds of files of what they do during the war, and then you get to that period, and and it's a couple of boxes of documents, uh, because that's all there is. It's it's a few very um sort of clean up meetings, uh, sorting out leftover money from donations gathered during the war, sorting, sorting out leftover material, um, blankets, boots, bandages, medicines, things like that. What are we going to do with all this stuff? Um, there's some talk about reforming committees, um, petitioning uh, Washington to sign the Geneva Convention, which is, is first put to um, Washington uh, in, in uh, 1864 during the, the conflict itself, not particularly good timing for a number of reasons. Um, and there's this idea that but because by this time the Red Cross movement has begun in, in Europe, there's this idea that we can either keep developing on our own or we can join the Red Cross movement. And initially they want to develop their own thing. They realize by the late 1860s that what they need to do is to actually uh, join the Red Cross movement and become the American Red Cross 
that goes nowhere. And the last few uh, meetings, uh, it's they've got this in, in the archives. There's this very uh, pretty thick meeting book, which I, I got my hands on and was very excited. Oh, this will be great. This will be great. Uh, uh, it's about four pages of that book that I have writing on. And the rest <laughs> is just empty. It just it just ends. It just ends with a whimper. They just and 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 what happens at those meetings is is very. I can't even remember what happens. It's so <laughs> it's so completely unimportant. Um, um, yeah, it's it's a very sad ending to what was uh, at at a time, particularly when they get to the end of the war and they're really at their sort of maximum capacity. They have these great um, dreams, and it was interesting because when I when I wrote my first book about the the international committee of the red cross during the second world war the exact same thing happens in 1945 the icrc um really believes that it's going to sort of spearhead this post-war reconstruction of europe and uh, become this humanitarian empire and and the the allies very quickly um uh, tell them no that's not going to happen and, and we're going to take over and this is going to be a un uh, thing um so it was a very strikingly similar thing happens to uh the ussc Uh, at the end of the Civil War. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And yet there's this interesting contrast with the, uh, with the uh, Red Cross in your book because the USSC becomes, you know, emerges during the wars, this dynamic organization that then withers in peacetime. Whereas as you detail, the Red Cross is an organization that starts in an environment of peace but, uh, but uh, then, you know, has to adjust and and, and in some ways, uh, you know, adapt to the conditions of war. I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe uh, take us back to what is it that led to the inspiration of the Red Cross and how it uh, sought to, you know, make itself useful, employ its services in the wars that were emerging in Europe in the uh, mid 1860s through the early 1870s. The Red Cross is born of the similar forces that drive Nightingale um, to to the Crimea and and, and build her reputation. Uh, that is to say, uh, a war, in this case, um, the uh, um, Italian War of Independence in 1859, in which uh, the, the armies of Napoleon III clashed with the Austrian armies of Emperor Franz Josef. Um, during this conflict, there is the same degree of, of war correspondency, talking about how horrible everything is. And that all gets out and, and that causes certain outrage. But what really um, tips it over and, and leads to the creation of the Red Cross, the experiences of one man, a, a Swiss uh, businessman. I use that term very, um, very generously. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Samaritan playing a businessman uh, by the name of Henri Dunant, who um, is, is, is crossing through Lombardy and he comes across the battlefield of Solferino, uh, which was a, an appalling battle. Um, in which um, uh, an entire valley is basically left glutted with uh, the dead and the dying. What Dunant, who has never seen a battlefield before, um, what, what strikes him looking down at this carnage is that there's no one tending to these men. 
and these are these are the armies. These are two of the the largest, most powerful, and, and well regarded armies in Europe. The armies of two emperors, Franz Josef and Napoleon III. And yet, there doesn't seem to these armies don't seem to have any any medics. Um, so Dunant sets to work trying to help out as best he can. He knows nothing about medicine, um, but he, he tries his best. And he's not alone. There's a there's a veritable army of of uh, civilians who who sort of come out from all the surrounding villages and help out. And when uh, Dunant finishes uh, cleaning up as best he can that battlefield, he lapses into what today we would probably call uh, a bout of post-traumatic stress disorder, where he locks himself away in Geneva, and he writes uh, a book called The Memory of Solferino, in which he not only lays out in very graphic terms what he's seen um, in a far more um, deep and, and less sensational and more emotive way, perhaps, than some of the war correspondents of, of that war have. But at the end of the book, he suggests that this could be remedied if governments going forward and armies going forward recruit uh, volunteers uh, who can who can help out in times of war just as he has and have these people uh, actually formed up in a semi-organized fashion um, ready to deploy when when these mass armies clash. And that's the genesis of the Red Cross idea. Um, it gets jumped on by uh, some venerable citizens of Geneva, not the least of whom is a lawyer called Gustave Monnier, who um, is very integral to this story because he sees Dunant's vision and he says, well, this is wonderful, but actually this is quite utopian unless you get a signed agreement uh, from the from the, the powers that be in the world. And that's what leads to the discussions for the calling of a conference in, in 1864 in Geneva uh, to sign the 10 articles, what becomes the first Geneva Convention, which is an agreement by the states that sign it to uh, agree that uh, a particular symbol on the battlefield, the Red Cross on a white background, will be sacrosanct, and that um, anyone displaying that symbol has to be afforded some some sort of measure of um, um, invulnerability on the battlefield. They're, they're not to be harmed, basically, because they are acting in a humanitarian way. They are hors de combat. They are out of the fight. They are just in the background doing their humanitarian bit. That is the theory. Uh, the practice is an awful lot messier. It's interesting because it's it's not just the fact that you know you have that attitude, but it's also the flip side of it, which is this idea that they're supposed to care for the soldiers, irrespective of which side on which side they're fighting. And, and and you describe how that there's a certain amount of of skepticism, to say the least, uh, when because ultimately this has to go through this national process. And I was especially struck by the by you know the the country that as you describe it most enthusiastically embraces this idea of the Red Cross and and, and implements it within their own uh, ranks. I was wondering if you could perhaps detail that process and why it was that it was Prussia that really embraced this in a way that, uh, you know, a, a more uh, established power like, say, France did not. Well, it's it's one of the many, many ways in which um, Otto von Bismarck and the people around him are ahead of of what's going on um, uh, p politically and, and, and militarily um, uh, so far ahead of of, of the other European powers at this time. Um, what Kant von Roon, the, uh, the war minister of Prussia, understands is that these volunteer units, these Red Cross units, are actually a gift 
if they can be controlled. They're a gift because they can uh, nurse the wounded back to health. A uh, healthy soldier is a fighting soldier. This is a lesson that the Prussians have understood by observing what happened in the Crimea. Um, they stayed out of that war, uh, but they, they looked at it from afar and sort of understood, well, you know, there's something in this. Um, you also, this is happening at a time when, when Prussia is undergoing a, a series of, of army reforms, um, which have seek to create a, a more mobile um, uh, army, which draws on uh, militias that are that are well trained um from the landwehr um and and sort of reorganizing them and that is that idea that you can take citizens and make them soldiers the prussians look at that and say well what's to say you can't take citizens and turn them into medics it's the same principle um and they serve the same function which is to create a, a very well-oiled fighting machine that can replenish itself if these people know how to actually treat the wounded so it, it's part of the, the general culture of war mindedness in, in Prussia during this period when they're fighting for unification. They got their eyes on uh, Schleswig-Holstein and then, of course, the war with Austria in 1866 and finally with France in, in 1771. It's that war culture and that thinking about war and thinking about the logistics of war, which really drives the embrace of the Red Cross movement there. Um, and what's important about that for the movement itself is that it, it very much kills off in, in the most practical way, uh, as you mentioned, that that original idea, that hopeful idea that maybe this could be a case of um, medics roaming the battlefield, helping whoever, irrespective of their nationality. Now, that is still adhered to in a patchy sense. I wouldn't say it's, it's uniform, um, but th there is that that cynicism, that skepticism built into that idea from the start. And what the Prussians do is they they in, in an indirect way, they basically say to the to other parties to the Geneva Convention, just because there's this utopian notion out there doesn't mean and, and just because that's a hard notion to to wrap your head around doesn't mean the whole idea is bad. Uh, you can still raise these 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 civilian uh, medical groups and you can still use them. And every now and then they might, you know, help out the enemy soldiers. But by and large, as long as you keep them on track and keep them focusing on nursing your wounded back to health what's the problem with that and that's the lesson that the prussians teach um a lot of the the um, military observers who descend on the various battlefields of the franco-prussian war in particular they see what happens at metz and sedan and at the siege of paris and a lot of them come away from that these are these are british observers and american observers they come away from that war and say you know this this using the Red Cross and the, the, organizing their military medical capabilities, using trains to evacuate the wounded en masse. This was stuff that uh, Hammond and Letterman were talking about during the Civil War. Um, the, these guys are onto something and, and they, they've, real, they've realized how to use the Red Cross uh, for the purposes of war. Now, up until this point, we've been talking about the effort to control war by treating its uh, victims, the, the wounded, the people who've, who've been injured in it. And yet, to, to focus upon that, it might be giving a bit of a distorted uh, view of your book, because as you explained, there is just one of a variety of different efforts that, that people are embracing to try to uh, somehow tame this concept of war. And you describe that simultaneously with the effort to 
uh, create the uh, Red Cross, you also have this effort to establish some sort of regulation of war through the development of laws and, and the development of agreements. I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe take us back a bit and talk about, for example, the the, the involvement of the Inter- Institute of International Law and how these individuals and organizations were seeking to try to, you know, rein it in in that respect. Well, the idea of regulating uh, warfare it predates this era. Um, you can go right back to 1600s, really, for, for in its modern form, the idea that there, there do need to be restraints on violence. Um, there are minor developments in that field during the Napoleonic Wars. And during the U.S. Civil War, we have uh, the, the, the Code of Francis Lieber, which is issued to the Union Army as an attempt, um, sometimes a misunderstood attempt. I think people see it as this grand humanity Sort of document. It's not. It's it was Lieber trying to uh, uh, issue instructions for the Union troops to make them more efficient at uh, killing the enemy, winning the war, and doing it in a way that made the Union look good at the end, um, uh, from a sort of um, uh, PR point of view, um, and also ensuring that the Union prisoners of war were were kept in pretty good condition um so there there were some mercenary aspects to that but it was nonetheless the the lieber's code of 1863 was nonetheless the embodiment of this idea that had been growing steadily in in fits and starts for a couple of centuries that war needed to have restraints now the geneva convention was also part of that Um, it was focused more on on restraining suffering rather than say weapons or methods of war but you you get these these different threads of 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 restraint converging uh really in in 1874 at, at a conference in brussels which is is basically convened by these international lawyers group of international lawyers who go on to form um or, or by that stage have formed the institute of international law that was the year before in 1873 they convene this 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 conference in in the in the notion that they might be able to take Lieber's laws, which, um, if I remember correctly, the Lieber code is about 155 articles, something like that. It's a complete mess to it, it's it's full of contradictions and don't make sense a lot of it. And it was, as I say, tailored to the specific conditions of the Union Army during the Civil War. They want to take that and use it as a blueprint for a more universal code on how to to conduct warfare, how to treat prisoners of war. Um, how to police the use of poisons, the use of certain weapons, the treatment of civilian populations, etc. Um, and this is developing in tandem with the the international humanitarian law, that is to say, the Geneva Convention. Now, it speaks a lot to the concerns of this age that there is a lot more effort put into the the laws of war. Um, that is to say, the the laws controlling weapons and and how you're actually in a fight wars. Then there is into controlling suffering in war, um, and that's in part an indictment on the Red Cross for for dragging its feet a bit in in revising the Geneva Convention. But it's also testament to the fact that the the appetite really grows with the eating here when we have a succession of wars in in the United States and in Central Europe during the 1860s. And then we get a war in the Eastern Europe in the the 1870s. Um, And there is this sense that with war becoming more frequent um, in this post-Crimean era, 
uh, and with wars between states becoming more frequent, that preparing for that war and making sure that the, the, the mass armies that fight that war will fight that war within certain realms of constraint, uh, that becomes a, a priority. And that's really the, the fuel that, that, that drives the fire of the, the uh, Institute of International Law. It's this fear that there is a, there is a grand conflagration coming and that at the very least, um, there need to be preparations made to, to uh, regulate that war. They also dabble on the other side of the, the spectrum, which is to draft laws that might prevent the war from happening. So they try, to, they try to play both sides in both mitigating the excesses of war and eradicating it as a practice altogether. There's this aspect of it that uh, we've already uh, talked about with uh, regard to the Red Cross that also crops up with the international law, which is uh, there's this fascinating dynamic of nationalism and how you, you're talking about in so many ways these pan-national efforts. You're talking about the international Red Cross. You're talking about the international, uh, you know, Institute of International Law, this idea that they're going to reach across borders. And yet, as you as, as you point out uh, time and again in your book, ultimately, the greatest success comes when there is a, a national leadership behind it, uh, be it uh, the uh, you know the the war office in the Crimean War, uh, the the Prussian War Office, you know, uh, accepting the Red Cross, and then the fact that you have a lot of these uh, these um, you know treaties and agreements in the eighteen seventies being championed by Tsar Alexander II. It's, it's as if they're they're introducing these ideas, but unless they can get some sort of buy in from these 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 major political leaders, it really is a a a nice idea that doesn't really seem to uh, go as 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 far as they're hoping. Well, it, it, I mean, the initial efforts do, do speak to that where, you know, the Geneva convention is, is the, the first Geneva conference as, as I talk about in the book. I mean, it really does break down into a, a lot of, um, uh, nation based paranoia, whether it be uh, French or Russian fears of spies, uh, red, red cross personnel using, using the, the, the red cross symbol to spy or British fears that, that, um, you know, this would somehow signing up to this would somehow compromise, um, uh, eventually compromise the, the, uh, Royal Navy and its ability to make war. These national concerns really do override these grand ideas. But what was fascinating about this period was how, as time goes on, be it the, those seeking peace or those seeking to regulate war, they, they tweak to this and they understand that they need to appeal to these more uh, national sentiments and that the, the grand kind of um, appeals to, to international solidarity are, are they're, they're, they're not the basis, they're the end goal, but there needs to be a solid basis. And this is why you get, for example, the, the, the international coteries of peace seekers really um, embracing the efforts made by, by the Tsar by a series of czars, in fact, um, from the period of the St. Petersburg Conference in 1868, which convened to, to try and um, uh, regulate the uh, use of uh, exploding bullets. Uh, that's convened at the czar's behest. And then right through to the Hague Conferences of 1899 and 1907, um, again convened by a different czar to try and uh, uh, regulate uh, weapons and, and come up with peace treaties and things like that. These efforts are embraced by the peace seekers, even though a lot of them are, are you know, pretty certain uh, uh, with good reason that the, the 
actual motivation for the, for the czar, not, not the full motivation. I discuss in the book, there, you can take it various ways, but particularly when it comes to the, the Hague Conference of 1899, uh, Tsar Nicholas is, is uh, he's thinking a lot about the condition of the Russian army. And he's thinking a lot about how uh, Russia doesn't have the money, doesn't have the wherewithal, um, and is slipped behind a lot of the the revolutions in military affairs of this period in terms of war technology. And what he's doing with these conferences is trying to sort of hold up the march to war a bit, get some disarmament talks going, get some arbitration talks going. He's convening these talks in a in a national interest. Now, I, I as I explained in the book, there's more to it than that. Um, the Tsar is as much a victim as anyone to sort of future war fears and humanitarian concerns around that. Um, there's also the the need to be seen to be doing something to avert the future war. Um, so there are other motivations, but without question, at the heart of a lot of these grand initiatives, there is a a, a nation based um, uh, concern over making sure that that uh, armies are are prepared and have the time to prepare for war. And the peace seekers embrace this, even though they they know full well what's actually going on. Yeah, and I, I want to maybe focus, turn attention to the peace seekers because I, 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 I um, didn't mean to in any way overstate the fact that there's this. I mean, there's, nationalism is is a very powerful force during this period, but you do have these people that are are trying to look to these broader ideals. And I, I thought your discussion that was 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 uh, was nicely nuanced and and in some ways almost tragic about how you have these people that are are really trying to achieve this ultimate goal of. Of 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 bringing an you know a, a, an end to these wars in an effort to try to you know move past this era of violence and ha- how they were uh, you know doing this and how sometimes it did seem to work at cross purposes. These people were saying, should we really be sitting here and regulating the suffering of war or uh, you know constraining the the conduct of war? Aren't we just simply enabling war in that process? Shouldn't we just simply be saying you know you, we we shouldn't make it humane? We should end it altogether. Well, that's the the grand schism that that runs through this book, looking at these two, broadly speaking, these two intertwined stories of the the, the mitigators of wartime suffering and the eradicators of war as a process. Um, they they, I mean, this is this is the stumbling block. This is the thing they always come back to, and this is the thing that really heightens in the eighteen nineties. Um, th- this idea that that you know, the Red Cross are actually. By, by patching soldiers up and sending them out to war, they are making, they are prolonging wars, prolonging suffering. And they are actually working across purposes to to the forces of peace. And that's why the the defection, if you like, of uh, Henri Dunant uh, during that decade and into the, the early 1900s, when he he comes out as a, as a full-blown pacifist in line with the peace seekers, um, is 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 so interesting to me. And, and I make it such a focal point of the book is is, is looking at how, this man who founded the Red Cross has basically, I wouldn't say turned on his own, there's a detail in the book, they turned on him long before um, for various reasons, but he 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 really, he he's the embodiment of that process, that that tortured process of weighing up the, the pros and the cons of either approach. And what he, when he ends up throwing his lot in with the peace seekers, people like Berta von Suttner, um, that's him, in many ways, I think that's him sort of, throwing his hands up in despair and saying, well, you know, war is not getting any more humane. Uh, so we need to try this. We need to try the nuclear option and, and just wipe out the practice of war altogether. Um, he's one of the more wide eyed and utopian about it. But then there are others who I detail in the book who I think 
become very sophisticated in their approach. People like Frederic Passy, who work through trying to establish groups within uh, governments across the world and trying to get this into the sort of backdoor dis discussions in, in the corridors of power and trying to get power brokers thinking about this, thinking about their own interests, perhaps, within the wider international context. Um, and going back to, as you, as you said before, this, this thing of appealing to national self-interest um, to drive an internationalist agenda, which is to try and uh, eradicate warfare. So the, they're, they're both, they're somewhat, they're somewhat tragic and, and they are somewhat utopian, but then there are these flashes of, I think, real political savvy um, in, in, in the, the, the mindset of certain peace seekers that are, I think, well ahead of their time. We forget, you know, the, the battering that, that the peace seekers and pacifist movements take in, in, the, in the decades that are going to come. Uh, through the First World War and into the into the interwar period and and so forth, um, a lot of the ideas that these these guys lay down, particularly in the 1890s, a lot of the using arbitration and the way that they, they use arbitration to try and convince governments to 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 come to peace tables, um, I think are pretty sophisticated. Um, it's just that, as you say, that the, the their real enemy is time. That they are they are working against a, an agenda. Um, perhaps not for war as occurred in 1914, but they are working against a, a, a growing uh, feeling that's accelerating and, and intensifying into the 1890s, a growing feeling that there is something coming. There is some grand conflagration coming. Um, and that, that circumstance, that, that condition of fear, that naturally favors those who want to mitigate the sufferings of that, of that conflagration rather than end it altogether. It's, it's far more practical um, or, or tangible goal, it seems, to a lot of people. So when that war does come in 1914, and do, do these organizations, it's an interesting point because really that's, by that point, these organizations have been around for decades. They've been either fighting against war, fighting to mitigate its suffering. When, when you have the, this, this global conflagration, which, which, which surpasses in scale, uh, practice, you know, everything that, that, that they've experienced up until this point, you know, how, how well do, do these efforts do? Do they throw up their hands and go away? Do they adjust? Do they accept the reality? How, 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 in essence, I guess I'm asking, you know, to what degree were they successful in the end and to what degree uh, could they be, could a lot of their efforts be regarded as futile? Well, I think it's fair to say if the, if, if the book is an assessment of the a competition between the decades-long competition between humanitarians and peace seekers, the humanitarians win. Uh, they win because the, the Red Cross, and this has been established in certain other books, which I think somewhat erroneously sort of place the period 1914 to 1918 as the, the grand awakening of the Red Cross movement, as, as this, I think, could happen. But what 1914 to 1918 does is it really cements the place of the Red Cross and military medics in general within the practice of war. It's, it's, it, it confirms everything that had been brewing really since the 1850s, even before the Red Cross came around. It, it confirms everything that Nightingale has, had, had, had said needed to happen. It confirms everything that Dunant had hoped would happen. Um, and, it, and it brings it together. Um, in in a time of of, of great extremis during during uh, the Great War, um, and off the back of that war, although there are 
any failures. I mean, the war is obviously horrendous. There are all kinds of breaches of international law um, and international humanitarian law. Um, the the uh, scale of casualties and, and destruction is vast. But at the end of it, there is a, a renewed impetus to to invest in in uh, the the militarizing, for want of a better term, of of medicine and the militarizing of the Red Cross, which which is is confirmed somewhat when the Geneva Convention is is um, uh, renegotiated in in 1906, uh, and the terms of that renegotiation are that the Red Cross will now be more tightly bound to to military um, uh, commanders who will be able to to decide where the medics go. That the wisdom of that decision plays out in the First World War. And it only gets built on, built on going into the interwar period and the Second World War. So there, there are tangible gains for the humanitarians um, amidst all the suffering and amidst all the missteps and amidst all the violations of, of the Geneva Convention. There are some tangible gains there coming out of the war. Um, the peace seekers, they, they again, it's 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 fascinating because the the process that I document in the book of the and being sort of fragmented and going in all their different directions, that that continues into the First World War, where you get some who who uh, heed the call to arms and, and join up. There are some who join up, but not with a rifle. They decide to form uh, voluntary ambulance units. You get things like the Friends uh, uh, voluntary ambulance units, the Quakers, some of whom really wrestle with their consciences over whether, you know, uh, assisting that that old argument of that old debate over whether assisting the wounded is actually facilitating war making, um, and then you get others who 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 form a lot of the grassroots movements that uh, particularly uh, in the United States there's a lot of movements uh, led by women who are campaigning uh, uh, for uh, their men to stay at home and 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 uh, arguing for um, conscientious objectors. Um, so it, it does fragment, but as I as I sort of get to in the book, what I think is fascinating about this period is that the the grand ideas of arbitration, disarmament, um, getting states together in in a big room, in a big conference room, to 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 hash this stuff out and to figure it out. Um, these ideas persist into the interwar period, and I would say they 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 persist to this day. They're still fundamental to a lot of how uh, international relations in, in, in regards to peacemaking works to this day. So the ideas, the ideas, um, they, they persist, but the tangible, uh, demonstrable benefits of the humanitarian cause are definitely there to see during the First World War. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm actually uh, working on a project that has uh, grown off this rather organically. Um, I forget at what point in the book it's somewhere towards the end I start talking a lot about future war fears and how they they move they drive a lot of the agenda for the peace seekers and the humanitarians but in particular the the peace seekers going through to the Hague and what I'm working on now is the broader history of that future war fear during this period uh, and I'm also taking in fears of not just the the great war these these interstate wars but the fears of terrorism during this period um and how that um in the same way that fears of future war 
sort of uh, shaped the destinies, as I argue in this book, of, of humanitarian movements and, and military medics and international lawyers. What I'm getting at in, in the, the coming book is how uh, the fear of, of international terrorism and, and the fear of war was sort of conflated in such a way as to uh, shape a lot of intelligence services and, and the, the growth of military intelligence during this period. So I'm, 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 I'm in love with this period of, of history. I think there's so much to be, to be drawn out of it, uh, and I'm going back into it and, and sort of approaching from a, a different angle. Well, I, I certainly look forward to seeing what you draw out of it next. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying getting into it. The, the, there are some interesting parallels, and there's, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot from this period that I think if, if, if you understand how it all fits together, um, it explains an awful lot about, about uh, the world as it is today, for at least how I read it. Hmm. Well, James Crossland, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. And you, thank you very much.